for a lot of my life, I was pretty sure that I was going to be a teacher. And I guess it turns out uh, that in some ways that became true. Uh, but I thought that I was going to be a school teacher. Uh, in fact, when Aaron and I moved to Rosenort, when we first came here, I was in university. I was at the U of M. And I was partway through my bachelor's degree in order to get into the faculty of education uh, and get my teaching degree. Uh, and one of those years, it, may, it worked out that it made sense because of the courses uh, to take a part-time year. And so I was looking for a job, and I figured it would be a great idea to get a job as an educational assistant somewhere, uh, to experience life on that side of the classroom. And so I applied, and I was hired to be an EA in Dominion City. And I got hired to work uh, with a boy in a grade 8 class, but a day or two after I was hired, very quickly another EA ended up going on long-term leave. And uh, it was a higher-need class, and so I found myself working for that year uh, with a bunch of third graders. And through the course of that year, there were things that I loved, and there were things that I didn't love. But as I, as I connected with the kids in this class, and as I had the opportunity to work with them one-on-one, -on -one, several of them over the course of a year, one thing that never got old was sitting down with a frustrated kid to process some new idea or some new concept and working it through with them and approaching it from different angles and, and most of the time you would sit there and you would be helping them to wrestle with this thing and then all of a sudden it was like this switch would flip in their brains and they would get it. This aha moment. It was a very, very cool thing to be part of. I never got tired of that. I got to experience it over and over again with these kids, this sort of mixture of, of happiness and of surprise and of pride as this thing they had been wrestling with or struggling with or engaging with finally clicked into place. So some of you will be familiar with that feeling, that experience for yourself or for people uh, in your life working through problems and having that aha moment. And so I want to keep, I want to encourage you to keep that feeling in your minds a little bit. Uh, as we uh, go forward, and we're going to come back to that. So today what we're going to be looking at is Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the sower. And uh, taking a look at the big picture, Jesus has told some stories that are sort of parable-like heading up to this, but this is the first time in the New Testament that the word parable is used. And, and chapter 13 in Matthew actually marks a fairly dramatic shift in the way that Jesus is teaching. He very much switches into a different gear because he starts off his ministry saying things pretty straightforward. Jesus' first teaching is famously the Sermon on the Mount, where he speaks very plainly uh, and very directly about things. This is how you should act. This is what you should do. This is what you shouldn't do. This is how you are blessed. You've heard it said this way, but this is what I say to you. And, and, and this piece of scripture for many, certainly historically for us as Anabaptists, as Mennonites, and even for our church today, as we process theology and ethics and how to be a Christian, this is kind of the go-to passage, Matthew 5 to 7. It's the place that very much anchors our interpretation of Scripture and our understanding of what, to follow, what it means uh, to follow Jesus. Because it's this sort of incredible sermon where Jesus speaks very, very straightforward about a variety of things. He says it like it is. And as we keep on moving in Matthew, 
over the next few chapters, uh, sort of as a way to back up what he is saying, to give authority to his words, we find Jesus performing a variety of miracles. He heals and he raises from the dead and he exercises demons. Uh, but what happens as he is doing this is maybe the opposite of what, of what should be happening, of what we reading this wish would be happening. The crowds are growing, sure, but although the numbers are up, it's more about the spectacle and about the curiosity and actually sort of trying to catch Jesus making a mistake or saying the wrong thing. In fact, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, are, are, are walking around kind of following this crowd and saying the only reason that Jesus can do these things is because he's possessed by a demon himself. And so Jesus is surrounded by people who are either there to see the fireworks or are listening intently in order to find points of theology or ethics uh, to attack or to argue against or to bring to the higher authorities to get Jesus into trouble. And as we keep moving, as we get to chapter 11, there's this growing frustration in Jesus' response to these things. At one point, he says to the crowds, for John, that's John the Baptist, came neither eating or drinking, and they say, he has a demon. And the Son of Man, he's referring to himself, came eating and drinking. And they say, here's a glutton and a, a, glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So there's no way to win, Jesus is finding. And in the midst of all of this, uh, even Jesus' family is trying to get a hold of him. They're worried for his life and probably for their own lives as things are heating up here. And so we come to chapter 13, which starts off saying, that same day, which is worth noting, these things are coming immediately after the events of chapter 12, immediately after dealing very directly with some of these attacks and these issues, Jesus goes out of the house, he walks to a lake, he gets into a boat, and it says in verse 3 that he tells them, the crowd, many things, not as a sermon or a straightforward way in this case, but as parables, in parables. And from here on out, this is going to be the primary teaching style of Jesus. Telling stories, telling parables. So why does he switch? The disciples actually ask him this very question. After this first parable, they're confused by the change. And they say, why do you speak to people in parables? And Jesus replies, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. This is why I speak in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. Which is a tough statement from Jesus. It sounds very harsh and callous and unfair. But when we understand the chapters leading up to this, the context that Jesus is coming from, it begins to make a little bit more sense, I think. Jesus has spoken plainly. He's performed miracles. He's talked directly about what he's come to do. He's talked directly about the nature of the kingdom. And what it's done is it's attracted negative attention and it's attracted thrill seekers. He doesn't see real change in the hearts of people. And so he switches tax. Parables, Jesus says, are going to give more to those who have and take away from those who don't have. Parables are going to separate the crowds from the committed. And for those who have ears to listen, 
For those who seek to see, they're going to unveil deeper truths. They're going to open up new insights. For those willing to reflect, it's going to draw them into the story, and the rest can get left behind because Jesus says, I'm here to change lives, to draw people into a new kingdom, not for entertainment value. A key word that helps us to understand what Jesus is saying is this word understand that comes up several times in this chapter. He says, this is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing they do not see, though hearing they do not hear or understand. And the word is a Greek word that I can't really pronounce. Uh, it's called, uh, I think it's, it's, it's suniemi. Uh, but it's this idea of, of, uh, of really wrestling with something, of, of letting it sit and reflect and meditating on it and processing and engaging with the problem of puzzling it and of taking time with it. Uh, it literally means to put something together or to assemble the pieces. So Jesus is saying for those that are just here for the spectacle or for the show, they're going to miss it. They'll see it and they'll hear it, but they won't understand it. But if you want to understand, if you really want to know, if you're willing to wrestle with and engage with this, you're going to be rewarded. You're going to be drawn into something deeper. I had a Bible college professor that talked about parables as verbal time bombs. That's the way he talked about them. Or like the Trojan horse kind of, these simple stories that can slip in past your defenses, that maybe seem harmless or unassuming, and that are less likely to draw the hatred of the teaching authorities or to be quoted out of context or to be misrepresented. But once that story is in your head, it sits and it works. And then later, boom, the aha moment, the deeper truth. When I worked with those eight-year-olds, I could tell them how a calendar worked or how a math problem was supposed to be solved or how to figure out this logic thing or that puzzle or this word. But in order for them to really get it, in order for them to really unlock it, there had to be this period of wrestling and engagement and puzzling in a, in a personal way. And so that is the way that Jesus began to teach. So let's read this parable in Matthew chapter 13. We're going to start at verse 1. I invite you to turn there with me. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. This is the parable of the sower. And actually, maybe it could be more accurately called the parable of the soil. The soil is the subject here. The soil is what is changing through this parable, the sower remains the same, and the seed remains the same, but it's the soil that goes through these different transformations or is talked about in different ways here. The soil is what affects the outcome. And because this is Jesus' first parable, he'll do something that he doesn't do very often through the rest of Scripture. 
he's going to offer a translation. He's training his disciples on how to listen properly, on how to suniemi, on how to understand and engage and wrestle, how to have ears to hear. So we see this translation come uh, in verse 18. It says this, Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, that's that same word again, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. That is the seed sown along the path. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy, but since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and suniemi, who understands it. This is the one who produces a crop, yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. And so then the message comes together very clearly for us. Jesus is the sower, sending the message of the kingdom. The seed is the gospel, is this message. And the soil is the human heart, is our hearts, is how we respond to this message. It's interesting that Jesus' first parable is about parables. It's about how we listen and how we receive the message of the sower, how we receive his words about the kingdom of God. And so what I want to do is just quickly walk through the different ways in which people miss this message, according to Jesus. And he's been wrestling with this over the last several chapters, right? Spreading a message and seeing the ways in which this seed lands in the wrong places. The ways in which the human heart can take the gospel, can take the kingdom message, and, and ignore it or engage with it in unhealthy ways. And so Jesus is talking about his own ministry and his own experience with speaking to people about God and the response to that call. Uh, and before we dive in, I just want to make one more quick point. Sometimes I have heard this parable talked about as a salvation parable. And I think there's an element of truth to that. But this idea that if you're saved, you're good soil. If you're unsaved, you're some other type of soil. Uh, but I think that's a dangerous oversimplification of this parable. We can get really focused sometimes uh, in evangelical Christianity on the conversion moment on this single decision as sort of this pivot point. Uh, but the reality is that all of us are on a journey. And so getting hung up on that one decision, and it's an incredibly important decision, it's an eternally significant decision, don't get me wrong, but that can sometimes start to erase or to discount or to skip over the journey that all of us are on, regardless of what side of that decision we find ourselves it can make us believe that everything in our lives is, is just black or white. It's in or out. And when in reality, we're all growing and we're all changing no matter where we're at on that journey. And so just because we are Christians does not mean that we are exempt from having unhealthy or uncultivated soil in our hearts. So what I want, what I'm hoping for is that you'll walk away from this sermon 
uh, not having sort of a final sense of this is the category I'm in, I'm done, I don't have to think about it anymore, but that this will be something that you can wrestle with, that you can engage with, and that it'll give you a tool or a language to explore the state of your own heart. That as we explore this together, it's going to give you a tool to ask, what's going on in my heart today, in this moment, in this season? So I'm going to highlight the three types of soil that can inhibit or restrict the growth of the word, the gospel, the kingdom in our lives. So the first is the path. And according to Jesus, the path represents apathy. Some of his seed, uh, or for some of us, our heart condition is hard and packed down. It's like the path that's being walked on. It's, it's so beaten down or trod over that nothing's getting in. It's closed off. Maybe because of people walking over you or hurt in your life. Maybe because of bad experiences with religion or church in the past. You're closed off or you're shut down or you're hard-hearted towards this message. These are people who don't understand. And again, it's that same word. It's not about are they smart enough to get it. It's not about are they special enough to be chosen to get this message. It's are they willing to wrestle or engage with what is being said. In the case of the path, the seed doesn't even penetrate. It just sits on top of the road until the birds, and, and birds are almost always a, a negative thing in Jesus' stories, in Jesus' culture. Uh, in stories that come up, birds tend to represent evil or threat of attack. And so here the birds represent the evil one, Jesus says, the devil who snatches away what was sown. Nothing ever gets a chance to take root or to germinate because the soil is, the soil is so hard and hostile. Uh, the second type of soil is the rocks. And the rocks represent, I'm going to call it superficiality. Uh, when Jesus talks about this soil, this isn't so much that, that there are rocks mixed into the soil, but it's more that there's a thin layer of soil over bedrock. The seed germinates and it gets in and the plant grows, but there's no depth. There's no deepness of connection. This is someone who can show moments of passion and joy, who loves to engage emotionally, who loves the feeling of, of, of the happy kind of warm feeling uh, of church or, or, or of connecting with Jesus, who loves a supportive atmosphere, who maybe feels deeply and is moved and likes to connect, who wants to be in the room, but that's where it stops. It's all about taking. It's all about experiencing instead of giving or sacrificing or real change. It's about entertainment not about discipleship. There's no willingness to sacrifice. There's no willingness to give. There's only a desire to be fed. And Jesus says that this sort of soil can produce impressive-looking growth. The plant can shoot up quickly. There's joy there. But when storms come or the winds pick up or the sun burns down or struggles happen, the roots aren't there to support. And the third type of soil is the weeds is wealth and worries, Jesus says. The third thing that can trip us up, the third state of the heart that can cause unhealthy growth or restrict growth is what Jesus calls the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth. And this one is, I would say, out of the three, the most convicting for me and I'm sure for many of us. I have faith. The seed has gotten in. My faith has grown. My faith has weathered storms. It's been through ups and downs. It's remained but getting caught up in the worries of this life and wealth. And there are all sorts of good things that can be tied into that. 
There are all sorts of wonderful things that can end up falling into the category of things that can restrict our growth. Jesus has really hard things to say sometimes in Scripture about our relationships to our stuff, our possessions, even to our friends and relationships, and also to ourselves, to our own thoughts and to our desires and to our selfishness. We can take wonderful things, good things, relationship with family, self-care, self-empowerment, gifts, material blessings, promotions, goals, good things that are not in and of themselves wrong or bad or evil, but if those things begin to get in the way of the growth of God's word, that is the gospel message, that is the kingdom that Jesus brings, then we have some weeding to do. Then we have work to do. So what I want to do is just take 15 seconds to pause here and to allow you to process, to ask Jesus that question. Where's your heart at? What pieces of your life, be it apathy, be it superficiality or surface level faith, be it wealth or worries, what things in your heart are keeping you uh, from becoming the good soil, the fertile soil? So I'm just going to take a moment to pause. I'll open it up with a short prayer, and then we'll move on from there. But I want to give you a moment to reflect over this. So let's pray. God, you are the sower. You desire in us a healthy heart, a heart that loves you, a heart that promotes good growth. And yet there are things that can get in the way of that. Show us the areas in our life where we need to do some gardening, where we need to seek good soil. Amen. So if in that moment you feel that your heart is not where it needs to be, thank God for giving you insight and awareness into that, to the areas where you need to change. We all, all of us have pieces that could use a bit of rock picking, that could use a bit of weeding, that could use a bit of cultivating. And as we walk this journey and as we recognize the need for growth, I just want to take a moment to address the tools, the gifts that we have been given in order to help cultivate that change. The, uh, the, the, the heart tillers that we can use to prepare the soil for God to work. So just very quickly, first we have the Holy Spirit working inside of us, producing fruit and bringing about growth and change and renewal and new life. We can ask God to work inside of us and he responds. He lives in us. He wants to build us into a new creation. Second, we have God's word. We have the scriptures, which Paul tells Timothy are useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training. The Bible is God-breathed, and like a surgical tool, it can access our hearts 
in a way that other things can't. And as we seek to understand, to wrestle and engage with it, it can soften and garden and prepare our hearts for the life that Jesus has for us. And third, we have the church. We have this body, which we are a part of, which, like Jesus, is somehow both fully human and a supernatural entity. And when we are a part of this community, when we are engaging and actively participating in this life together, that changes us and promotes growth in a supernatural God-led way as well. Okay, home stretch. The last thing I want to talk about for a little bit with this parable is sort of what captured me about it in the first place. As we've been approaching, approaching this God in the Ordinary series, I find that I've been drawn uh, to the parables of Jesus in sort of a different way. And what's caught my attention is the way that Jesus chooses uh, to describe the kingdom of God. And, and you can see this actually throughout Jesus' life, certainly coming out of the Christmas story, uh, his birth and the events surrounding it. But, but looking at Jesus' parables, he's presenting a new kingdom. And kingdoms are so typically focused on prestige and honor and glory and might and power. And so kingdoms portray themselves in as heroic and elevated a light as possible. Rome, where Jesus is living at this time, flies banners with the soaring eagle on it. Uh, kingdoms build huge castles and palaces with ornate decorations and speak about themselves in, in, in puffed-up languages. Uh, in order to uh, be seen as important and as big and as powerful. And if someone were trying to speak about the kingdom of God, if someone were tasked to come up with stories about God's kingdom, you would think that the temptation would be to reach for stories like that, that are full of power and overwhelming strength. The kingdom of Rome is like an eagle. Well, then the kingdom of God is like a dragon. It's, it's like something bigger and stronger and more powerful and mightier. Your king lays claim to the mountains. Our kingdom has the stars. We control everything. Jesus controls everything. These big claims are big examples. And yet over and over and over again, when Jesus tells these stories, when Jesus says this is what the kingdom of God is like, we get these simple, soft, gentle, ordinary examples. Jesus, God himself, describes his own kingdom in these everyday sort of ways. The kingdom of God is like a woman mixing yeast into her dough. The kingdom of God is like a planted seed that grows into a tree. Like a shepherd looking for sheep like a fig tree ready to bud. And here, like a farmer walking along a path, sowing seed. This is not a kingdom that is focused on hostile takeover. This is not a kingdom going to war. This is not an aggressive posturing kingdom. It's soft. It's gentle. It provides choice. It provokes growth. And it happens in the middle of everyday, normal ordinary things. There is a story told by G.K. Chesterton, who's probably my favorite author. I don't know if you realize this by asking me to preach on such a regular basis, but you've probably significantly upped the amount of Chesterton that you are going to hear, either directly or indirectly, on a month-to-month -month basis. 
He's a bit of a grumpy looking man, but he writes with this kind of joy and creativity. I can't totally reconcile what I read on the page with every single picture of him on the internet looks like this, kind of staring out sort of this, uh, I was talking with Darren, I called it a get out of my office look. But, but, but his, his words are filled with kind of life and energy and creativity. He's, he's often credited, uh, C.S. Lewis credits him as being the person that sort of rescued him from atheism. G.K. Chesterton opened up his mind to how God can work in the world. Uh, and, and he writes about this idea of God and this idea of ordinary and how we think about these things. He tells a story, a sort of a fairy tale, about two boys who encounter a fairy in their garden that grants them each a wish. And the first boy asks uh, to be made into a giant. So, so large that he can walk across country and go and see these wonders of the world that he's always been wanting to see. And the fairy grants them this wish and he is made huge and he travels all over. He visits Niagara Falls. And when he gets there, it's really no more impressive than his bathtub because he's so huge. And he goes to the Himalayas and he looks and it's really not much more than the rocks in his garden. He's very disappointed. And the second boy asks for the opposite thing. He asks to be made a half an inch high. And so there in his garden, he is shrunk down and suddenly he's in this fantastic green jungle, it's impossibly big and strange and beautiful and wonderful, and he runs off on an adventure and finds never-ending enchantment and excitement in his garden. And Chesterton goes on to say that he sees a lot more value in being the dwarf than the giant. He celebrates making mountains out of molehills. And he, in fact, corrects the reader and says, molehills are mountains if only you can look at them from the right perspective. He finishes his essay like this. He says, I have my doubts about all this real value in mountaineering and getting to the top of everything and overlooking everything. Satan was the most celebrated of Alpine guides when he took Jesus to the top of an exceeding high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the earth. But the joy of Satan in standing on a peak is not a joy in largeness, but a joy in beholding smallness, in the fact that all men look like insects at his feet. It is from the valley that things look large. It is from the level that things look high. I am a child of the level, and I have no need of that celebrated alpine guide. I will lift my eyes up to the hills from whence cometh my help but I will not lift up my carcass, my body, to the hills unless it is absolutely necessary. Everything is in an attitude of the mind. And at this point, I am in a comfortable attitude. I will sit still and let the marvels and adventures settle on me like flies. There are plenty of them, I assure you. And then his last line is this. The world will never starve for want of wonders, but only for the want of wonder. The world will never, never starve for the want of wonders, but only for the want of wonder. God in the ordinary isn't about making God smaller or less interesting or boring or trying to box him into a place where he doesn't belong. The magic 
and the wonder and, and the thing that separates Christianity so dramatically from all other religions is we have a God who brought himself to us, who made himself regular, who made himself a baby, a teenager, an adult with regular friends and regular meals and regular sleeping and brushing his teeth and laughing and processing and learning and working. And actually, because God is here with us in the ordinary, suddenly everything becomes extraordinary. Doesn't it? Suddenly every yeasted dough, every sown seed, every shepherd and sheep becomes magical and wonderful and full of adventure and possibility. And so these evening sessions that we're coming up to are about celebrating that, are about finding God just where he loves to be and pointing him out and telling each other the stories of God in everyday life. Talking about exactly the things that have happened to you where you go, hmm, that's neat. But don't feel it would ever be worth bringing up next to the tall tales and the incredible things that sometimes other people talk about, the really big miracles. There's no such thing as a small miracle. Not if you look at it right. And so like Chesterton, we're going to try and make ourselves small enough to see the majesty of the world around us, to see the extraordinary and the ordinary. That time when you felt the push to go talk with that stranger. That time when your day went off the rails, but you felt a supernatural calm. That time when you managed to say just the right thing to a hurting friend to speak life into their situation. That sequence of decisions that looking back led you to just the right place in your life. So pay attention to the soil in your heart, to how well you are tuned in to the still small voice of a God who loves to work in the ordinary and the normal. Like the tiny boy in the garden, ask God to give you eyes to see and ears to hear the way that he is working, the wonder of the ordinary. And I couldn't be more excited to share and celebrate those stories together with you in a few weeks. Amen.